to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, New International Version. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay, and today we're going to be joined again by Patrick Prill, who has written a fascinating book entitled The Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. Patrick was with us last time on Anchored by Truth and is joining us remotely today. We wanted to bring Patrick back on because we believe that some of the observations he has made in his book could help our listeners deal with some of the misinformation that circulates today in popular culture. In recent years, there have been a number of books written by prominent atheists that have gained widespread attention in the press or culture. But all too often, no one stops and looks to see whether the arguments being made by the atheists actually make any sense. Well, Patrick has taken a look, and he has concluded that many of the ideas that have been widely circulated actually don't make any sense. Patrick has recorded his observations in his recently released book, and he aptly titled this book, Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. His book would make a great morning devotional because the chapters are easy to read in just a few minutes, but they give you a completed idea, very suitable for meditation throughout the day. We'd like to welcome Patrick Pearl back to Anchored by Truth. Patrick, would you like to say a word of greeting to the Anchored by Truth audience and maybe tell us a little bit about your background? Thank you for inviting me to join you on Anchored by Truth. It's a pleasure to join you. By way of background, I'm a Christian. I'm a husband, a father of five young adults. I spent over 30 years in the management consulting and investment industry. And while pursuing my career, I also took the time to earn a couple of master's degrees, one in church history and the other in theology. And now I focus most of my time on advancing the case for God. Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write the book, Things Atheists Say That Make No Sense? There were several reasons why I chose to write the book. The first was that my kids were actually encountering atheists in their high school classes, which was a bit of a surprise to me. It wasn't a theoretical thing in northern New Jersey. The second is when I actually started engaging with atheist ideas by reading the books of many popular atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and many others, I found that many of the things that they said actually made very little sense. Some of the things that they said were just absolutely incorrect. And when I looked for a book that was related to the broad spectrum of things that atheists are saying in their popular books, I couldn't find it. 
You know, it's interesting. In the book, I included the stories of 10 atheists who did change their minds. They changed their minds for a variety of different reasons. And that gives me great hope because people who have a very, very strong position can change their position when they're confronted with evidence, when that evidence is presented to them in the right way, hopefully kindly, patiently. And so I do have hope for all the atheists that I've quoted, and I definitely pray that they do come to know God, and more specifically, that they come to know Christ. Patrick, you addressed observations made by some of the most well-known atheists of our age, people like Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and others. But one of the great things about your book is that you are only addressing their ideas and not them as people. We think this is a critical point. Our goal when we engage with people who disagree with Christianity is to help them understand, as in 1 Peter 3.15, which says, the reason for the hope that lies within us. We don't want to win arguments or embarrass anyone. We want to win souls. We want people to know Jesus so they can enjoy fellowship with him for all eternity. Well, let's get to some specific questions. Patrick, we live in an age where utilitarianism is a very common worldview. This is the worldview that says that our worth is based on our usefulness. You have a chapter in your book that addresses this misconception. Would you mind telling the Anchored by Truth audience why utilitarianism is inconsistent with the Christian faith and why it is important for us not to fall into the utilitarian trap? Please help us understand why our value as human beings goes beyond just our looks, our wealth, our strength, or our capabilities. Many atheist philosophers and scientists in the late 1800s and early 1900s embraced Charles Darwin's views on natural selection as justification for their belief that people are not created equal. Now, once you reject the idea that God exists, you are also rejecting the idea that God created people equal. So if there is no God and God did not create people to be equal, then they look to natural selection as the source of human value. The view that human worth or value is based upon your capabilities, your strengths, your usefulness, is really held by atheists who embrace biological naturalism. The scientific materialists basically said that there is no purpose or meaning, that there is no value, you know, there is no intrinsic value. That second group, the biological naturalists, would say that your value is dependent upon your strengths, your abilities. This would be kind of the classic naturalism of, you know, the strong will overcome the weak. It's a pretty dangerous and scary perspective on human worth, and that's the perspective that was used by Hitler to advance his ideas of Aryan supremacy and that the weak should perish, the strong should survive, the strong should overcome. And as a perspective of morality, it's the kind of perspective that has caused one of the greatest degrees of harm in human history. You also address a related problem that God isn't required for morality to exist. In our Lord of Logic series, Anchored by Truth addressed the many difficulties that arise from those who would like to find an objective system of ethics that doesn't acknowledge God's existence. Because without God, any system of morality or ethics would ultimately be based simply on physics or chemistry. The starting point for a system of ethics that doesn't acknowledge God is ultimately based on nothing more than the random collision of atoms and molecules. 
We'd like to hear your thoughts on the issue of how morality could possibly originate if God doesn't exist. There are a lot of ways to describe to the idea that morality could exist apart from the existence of God. And I'm going to choose a way of responding that's really focused on the basics. The first is, what is a person? The second is, how do we ascribe value to people? The third would be purpose and meaning. And then the fourth is morality itself. That sounds like a very sensible starting point. But could you give us some of the specifics of what you're thinking about? So when you think about the type of morality that we all tend to want, it seems to be dependent upon the value that we seem to want. And whether you're looking at, you know, the various protest movements that are going on today or civil rights movements or whatever the movement was, we all seem to want the same type of value. And that's not surprising. We want to have value that's high. We want to be at least as highly valued as everyone else, so that means we want value to be equal. We also want our value to be unchanging. We don't want people to treat us one way today and another way tomorrow. And we want it to be universal. We want everybody to treat us that way. So when you think about it, you have to get back to the basics of, can that type of value exist apart from God? And I guess the way I would put it is this. If we are just lumps of matter, then we don't really have value. However, if Christianity is true and Judaism is true, that we are created in the image of God, that we are truly unique beings, and that we are beings that are highly valued by God, valued highly, equally, unchangeably, and universally, then it gives a whole new dimension for our purpose and meaning. And then that gives a whole new dimension to the type of morality that we want and that we should be attributing to other people. So just as an example, I looked at the Humanist Manifesto 2000. And in the Humanist Manifesto 2000, they say that we should treat people equally and that we should treat people as though they have high value. And they laid out a whole number of kind of moral principles that they thought that we should abide by. It's interesting that most of those moral principles, though not all, but most of those principles are borrowed from Christianity, and it's obvious that their perspective of human value can't be provided by physics. It can't be provided by chemistry. It can't be provided by biology. And it truly can't even be provided by humans, because if 141 people say today that you have value and should be treated in a certain way, who's to say that another 141 people couldn't disagree with them. And then if this 141 and that 141 didn't agree, then what are they going to do? Fight it out and determine who's right? Ultimately reverting back to naturalism? So the only way that we can have the true value that we want is if there is a universal, independent, unchanging valuer who actually has the authority to ascribe it to us. And that type of valuer can only be God. You also tackle the assertion that real scientists don't believe in God. We think that would be news to Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, who is the lead scientist for Creation Ministries International and who has been a guest on Anchored by Truth. Dr. Sarfati has a Ph.D. in chemistry and physics, and he leads a team of scientists who have doctorates in a wide variety of fields, including biology, physics, paleontology, and other fields related to the truth of the Bible. How do you address the notion that real scientists don't believe in God? 
Richard Dawkins and a variety of other atheists try to advance the case for atheism by claiming that highly intelligent people don't believe in God. And in some cases, they say that elite scientists don't believe in God. In other cases, they say that the intellectual elite don't believe in God, as though these groups of people are the ultimate ones who can opine on God's existence or not. I find it really interesting that when you look at the United States population, and we're a relatively educated group of people, roughly 90 to 93 percent of people in the United States believe in God or a higher power. Then you think, okay, well, what about people who have been to college? What do they believe? Well, it turns out that about 89% of people who've graduated from college actually believe in God. Then you go, well, if the people who graduated from college are not the intellectual elite, well, who are they? Well, perhaps it's college professors. So then you look at the group of undergraduate professors in the United States, and 75% of those believe in God or higher power. So the challenge that Richard Dawkins and others have is they have to continually reduce their sample size to get a small enough group of people where the overwhelming percentage of that small group of people actually do not believe in God. And his ultimate sample size he takes from the Royal Society in the United Kingdom, which is a fellowship of scientists, roughly 1,700 scientists. And he points to them as being a group of people who overwhelmingly disagree with the idea of the existence of God, and especially a personal God. I guess my observation is that this is, in fact, a club, that the members of the club admit you into admission into their club. When you put it that way, I think it does shed an entirely new light on the claim that real scientists, or the intellectual elite, don't believe in God. As long as the critic is willing to limit the size of the audience they're talking about, I suppose you could make a lot of different claims for the group of people and then try to project the results onto the broader population. But that's not the only downside to this form of perception manipulation, is it? There was a case a few years ago where the director of public education for the Royal Society was actually forced out of his post because he merely acknowledged creationism as a worldview even though he didn't agree with it. He just acknowledged it. So my question is to Mr. Dawkins, you have a club of 1,700 people, and it seems that uh, that club is, is highly inclined to admit people who agree with them. So how is that possibly a proof in the non-existence of God? And second, what about the brilliant attorneys on the planet? What about the brilliant philosophers on the planet? What about the brilliant accountants, lawyers, business people? What about the brilliant artists on the planet? Is it only a scientist that can opine on the existence of God? Are they the only ones that have the intellectual capacity to have a perspective? I would think that Mr. Dawkins' sample size is just far, far too small. Thank you for putting that business about who does or does not believe in God into perspective for us. But let's move on to another topic. You have an entire section in your book on religion, and you take on some very common assertions such as religion ruins everything and religion is the biggest cause of war. What do you have to say about these assertions? The claims that Christopher Hitchens and others have made that religion ruins everything and that religion is the greatest cause of war is actually, in a way, funny and in a way, ludicrous. It's funny because when they say that people who believe in God, that religion ruins everything, 
That's a little bit like saying that people who breathe air or people who drink water ruin everything. Almost everyone on the planet does have a perspective on religion and does exercise some religious beliefs. So their claim that religion ruins everything is literally like saying that people who breathe air or people who drink water ruin everything. It's kind of nonsense. The second claim that religion is the cause of more wars than everything else is also pretty bizarre when you actually look at the data. So again, in the United States, about 90% of the people in the United States believe in God. So if belief in God caused wars, then most of our wars should have been caused by belief in God. But when you look at our roughly 14 wars since our Declaration of Independence days, only one out of our 14 wars has had anything to do with religion whatsoever, and that was the War on Terror. And of the total deaths in the field of battle, that war was attributed to seven-tenths of one percent of all war deaths. So the claim that war is caused more by religion than anything else in the case of the United States is ludicrous. And a few gentlemen took a look at the Encyclopedia of Wars, which is basically an inventory of all wars from the beginning of time and all war deaths from the beginning of time. And their analysis suggested that, yes, there have been wars that have been caused by religion. And they attributed 7% of all wars in the history of mankind, all recorded history, 7% of all wars, and 4% of war deaths. So while people have fought wars in the name of religion, to say that it causes more wars than anything else is really ludicrous because the data actually do not support the contention. Anchored by Truth has done an entire series on miracles. You also address miracles in your book. How do you address the assertion that miracles can't happen? The logic that most atheists use to support the idea that miracles don't happen is miracles don't happen because miracles don't happen. It's essentially just circular reasoning. But I find it interesting that about 80% of people in America actually believe in miracles, and I assume that most of those people are not deluded or living in some sort of fantasy world, so they have a logical reason for believing what they believe. But even if you weren't relying upon the 80% of Americans who believe in miracles, you have to look at what a miracle is. And a miracle basically is an event which cannot be attributed to a natural cause or a human cause. That the laws of nature, that the probabilities of nature, that the capabilities of nature can't support it happening. So I look at a couple of the really big things that have happened through human history and through the history of the universe. And I start with the beginning, the Big Bang. So at the Big Bang, matter, energy, space, time, and laws came into existence. And because the physical came into existence when there was nothing preceding it, it's obvious that nature could not have been the cause of nature. So the first observation is that the Big Bang suggests that miracles do happen. The second one is life. You know, how can non-living things bring forth life? There is no known law of nature requiring life to emerge. Scientists have pondered this for centuries, and there is no known law that requires life to emerge. In the same manner, there's no known law requiring consciousness to emerge. When you look at the beginning, when you look at life, when you look at consciousness and kind of look at the entire history of the universe, 
two of the big imponderables are, how did purposeful information develop? So if it requires purposeful information for a single cell to exist, and evidently there needs to be roughly 1,300 gene products for a single cell to exist, how did purposeful information happen? There's no known law of nature which requires purposeful information to even exist. So you look at a variety of things and you go, wait a minute. There are a massive number of big things in the universe that nature itself cannot answer. So based upon the simple definition of what a miracle is, the beginning, life, consciousness, purposeful information, they're all miracles. I think that's a very interesting insight. You're absolutely right that nature can't explain the existence of nature. And Anchored by Truth has done a couple of series on this subject. The big point is that any worldview that wants to provide explanations has to account not just for matter, energy, space, and time, but also for life, logic, language, law, purpose, and intelligence. And explanations such as the general theory of evolution, or undirected physics and chemistry, leave more gaps than they cover. Well, let's cover one more topic for today. What do you say to some of the historical complaints that are made about Christianity? For instance, the assertions that Jesus may or may not have existed, or that the Gospels are unreliable. When some atheists try to challenge Jesus' existence, what I would think that they're really trying to do is strike at the core of the beliefs of roughly a third of the people on the planet that believe that Jesus is God. So when Bertrand Russell, for example, says that Jesus' existence was quite doubtful, or Christopher Hitchens, who said that Jesus' existence was highly questionable, what they're really doing is they're striking at the core of the theistic beliefs of a third of the people on the planet. This makes no sense to me, obviously, because when you look at early historians like Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny, Jesus clearly was a real person. He lived in the first century. He was regarded by his followers to be the Messiah. He was widely acclaimed. He was viewed as having performed a huge number of miracles, and he had this incredible following. So to say that he didn't exist really strikes not just at the core beliefs of Christianity, but it really strikes at the core accounts of multiple historians in the first century. One of the people I like to point to to confirm the fact that Jesus lived is Celsus. He was an early second century Greek philosopher who really adamantly attacked Christianity. But one of the things he did not do is attack the existence of Jesus. Instead, he acknowledged that Jesus lived, and I quote, A few years ago, he began to teach this doctrine being regarded by Christians as the Son of God, unquote. He also called Jesus' followers tax gatherers and sailors of the vilest character. He said that Jesus' miracles were sorcery and magic. And he said that Jesus was executed as punishment by the Jews for his crimes. And he said that Jesus' resurrection was a shadow. So what's really significant about Celsus is he was adamantly opposed to Christianity. He did not attack the fact that Jesus lived. He didn't even attack the major events of Jesus' life. He didn't attack a lot of the major events or incidents described in the Gospels. Instead, what he tried to do is attribute them to other things. So he attributed the miracles to sorcery. He attributed the resurrection to a shadow. 
But what he did not do is attack the fact that Jesus did exist. Before we close for today, Patrick, are there any final thoughts or encouragements that you would like to offer to our listeners? I'd like to close with a couple of reminders and perhaps one or two encouragements. The reminders are that worldviews are really important. And if we're not actively advancing a worldview that includes God, by default, our family members, our kids are going to be exposed only to a naturalistic view because the schools aren't allowed to do anything else. The schools will present what they're allowed to do. So if we're not showing the evidence for God, if we're not explaining how morality, beauty, nature, all of these things are evidence to support the existence of God, then our kids and our family members aren't going to hear it because the schools and our culture is basically silent. So that's my first encouragement. My second encouragement is really just to pray. God can take away spiritual blindness. God can reveal himself. God can change hearts. So you can convey truth from the outside, but only God can do things from the inside. So I do encourage people to pray. Finally, I would really encourage people to buy a copy of the book, not because I need to make any money from a book. It's because people need to be equipped to have these conversations. These are the things that atheists are actually saying in their popular writings. You know, you can't expect your high school kids, college students, or your friends to invest in two dozen books to learn how to respond to these common arguments. Most youth pastors and college ministers are not equipped to have these kind of conversations. It just requires a lot of preparation. But you can help to prepare them. You can help to prepare yourself. You can help to equip your kids. You can help to equip people you love. So that's my encouragement. I pray that God blesses you as you seek to advance the kingdom of God. I pray that God gives you the words to say. I pray that God gives you opportunities. And I pray that you're faithful. In Jesus' name. We'd really like to thank Patrick Prill for being our guest on Anchored by Truth today. I think we all can be inspired by the kind of reasoned approach that Patrick uses to address objections that are lodged against Christianity. We've covered a lot of ground today. We've also seen that even atheists acknowledge that when they look out at nature and out into the cosmos, there is an incredible amount of design and intelligence evident. The atheists may classify this appearance of design as being an illusion, but as Christians, we know better. We know that the universe and life appear designed because they are. This observation is not only biblical, it's also logical. Today, for our closing prayer, let's pray a prayer of adoration for God the Father, who is, in the words of the Nicene Creed, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. Certainly the only path to true wisdom and righteousness starts by adoring and worshiping the one true God. A prayer of adoration of the Father. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise you and adore you and bow down before you. We are overcome by thoughts of your majesty and excellence and we humbly come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know from your word that you are a God in whom there is no imperfection, want, or lack. You are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. 
because you are the source of all light and illumination, there is no shadow or dark place in you. All creation stands in silent awe when it turns toward you. You dwell in the loftiest of the high places, surrounded by the angels that you created to serve you. Glory is your robe, power is your mantle, exaltation your drape, and sovereignty your cloak. Mere words could never describe your grandeur, yet we are exalted as we try. You alone are God. There is no other God like you. There never has been and there never will be. There will come a time when you will fully exercise your dominion as is fitting and right, and you will set right all that does not conform to your will. We look toward that day when we can stand breathless and amazed at your beauty and holiness. Until that time, let us grow in the knowledge and appreciation of your unmatched glory and let all honor, praise, and worship be given only to you. In Christ's name, let all who know him praise the Lord. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.